What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth Podcast, the podcast where we discuss history, mythology, philosophy, and how it intersects into our popular storytelling. My name is Derek Jones. As you know, I am very excited to be here today. We are tackling a monumentally huge topic, a topic that we have not tackled before, a topic that I think we're chomping at the bit. And I want to just give a little prelude to why we chose this topic Very soon, the next Marvel Cinematic Universe, e.g. MCU movie, will be coming out. And it's Marvel's The Avengers Endgame. And it's going to cap off an end to a, Jesus, what, 12, 13-year run of movies in one cinematic universe telling an interlocking story. And it's a monumental event. We don't talk about the MCU often on this podcast. We have talked about Infinity War. We have talked about Black Panther. We did an episode way back early in it where I was very critical of Marvel and and all that jazz. Let's not bring that up. But we wanted. (laughs) You just did. Yeah. Okay. I brought it up, but let's just forget about it. But we wanted to do something Marvel like and celebrating Marvel, but we didn't want to focus in on any one particular movie. So we decided that because you Midnight Myth listeners and fans love our Game of Thrones character case studies, we wanted to apply that methodology and that lens to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We are going to do our very first MCU character case study, and we are going to be discussing and analyzing Tony Stark also known as the Iron Man. It seems perfectly fitting because Iron Man is the Avenger who started it all, that he would be our first MCU character study. Uh, We have our hopes, we have our prayers, we have our fears about Endgame, and we hope that this gets you excited about the movie that's coming out uh, next week or this week. Uh, And we hope that at the end of that, we have a beautiful and contained arc for Tony Stark to remember uh, whether or not he survives this war. Uh, I'm really excited to talk Iron Man because seeing uh, the first Iron Man movie in theaters was pretty mind blowing for me as someone who was not a comic book reader and was like, wait a second, it can be like this and really opened me up to a, a new form of storytelling that I wasn't as familiar with. And I think we've found in preparing for this podcast that there's just a rich and dense and incredible wealth of material as far as history, mythology, and philosophy goes for talking about uh, the inspiration for Tony Stark and for Iron Man. So I'm very excited about this podcast. So a few preambles. We're going to be focusing specifically only on the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. We're not going to be discussing the comics Take it as a given that we will spoil all of those movies. So if you haven't seen a movie in which Iron Man is a part of it, there's a good chance we're going to talk about that and we're going to spoil it. In particular, the MCU is a challenge for me to tackle from a Midnight Myth podcast perspective. The reason for that is the explosive popularity of the MCU means that there's a lot of voices out there. There's a lot of opinions out there. There's everything from professional movie critics, professional comic book critics, to professional artists, to the amateurs. 
And there's so much to talk about, it can be a loaded subject. So a few things I want us to take as given, if you'll permit me. Yeah, of course. I want to take it as a given that a big reason for the success of the MCU, in particular Iron Man, is that Robert Downey Jr.'s charisma and the way that he acts in Iron Man catapulted this movie to really amazing heights and has helped catapult the MCU to amazing heights. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about yeah. that. Let's just take that as a given. He's amazing as Tony Stark and, and Iron it Man. Was seriously genius casting considering his background and the comeback story that it was going to be for him. Seriously genius on the part of John Favreau and Kevin Feige. Absolutely. And let's just take that as a given. Let's not dive too deep into that. There are several voices out there that have antagonistic views to the MCU or criticisms to the MCU. And a lot of them are valid. A lot of them are trolls. We're not going to dive too deep into any of that. But we also don't want to just completely fanboy, fangirl out on it. We want to offer offer a fresh take. We're going to be looking in particular to a the mythological and spiritual basis of the character Iron Man and the tradition that it comes on. And then B, we want to talk about some of the ethical questions the character has raised in the MCU and what those mean, what those can be applied to our world today. Wonderful. Yeah, I think very succinctly, we don't do reviews, so we're not going to be reviewing any MCU movies here, but we are going to be trying to dig beneath the surface, try to find out what's actually under the Iron Man suit. Uh, and I'm excited to get started. Before we uh, really dive in, if you want to get into contact with us, if you want to have a conversation, please hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also head to our website, www.midnightmyth.com for blogs and further content there. We also, if you head to that website and click shop, have a brand new merch store featuring a whole lot of interesting Midnight Myth swag and gear. You can get loaded up on your Midnight Myth t-shirts, on your Wheel of Ka shirts, on your History, Mythology, Philosophy, and Pop Culture sweatshirts, tote bags, and more. So definitely check out the merch store. Get loaded up. Um, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter while you're there too. Uh, at the bottom of the homepage, drop your email, and we'll keep you up to date on any interesting developments, new episodes, bonus episodes, all of it. Also, guys, if you like this format, if you like us doing character case studies of the MCU, go to Twitter, tell us what you think. We will do more if you like them. Yeah, there's a few characters we could do. And if you think, you know, you don't like it or have feedback, let us know on Twitter and how we can do it better going forward. And by merch. So let's begin. I would like to start with a reflection I had after Josh Whedon's The Avengers. Would you allow me to kick it off there? Yeah, sure. This was before I was a podcaster. I was still a history, philosophy, and mythology nut, and I was really ridiculously stupidly into the MCU. I'd never seen anything like it. Comic books finally looked and felt like comic books when you went and saw a comic book movie. I was completely fanboyed out. And in reflecting on why I thought Avengers was successful, I came to a theory that many of the main Avengers in the first Avengers, so Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Hulk, Black Widow, and Hawkeye specifically, had echoes or reflections in ancient epic heroes. In particular, from the classical, the classical Greek and classical Roman era. And I started rewatching the movies back then, the movies being Iron Man 1 up into the Avengers, from that lens to wonder if this, this hint that I had was correct. And I largely think it is. And my intro thought process around Iron Man is that he is the modern American equivalent of the Greek hero Achilles. If you're unfamiliar with Achilles, it's been a while since you took a high school or college literature class. Right. Achilles is largely known as the hero from Homer's The Iliad. The Iliad is a, a oral tradition, an epic poem that was first recorded, hopefully by Homer. We don't really know if Homer was real or not, um, in possibly around, you know, somewhere between 1,000 to 800 before the common era, BCE or BC, if you will. We're not really sure about that. 
And this writing, the Iliad, it told the exploits of a small chunk of time in the Trojan War, which is the war between the Greek city-states and the Trojans, in which Achilles is the main hero of the narrative. What are some of the commonalities that Iron Man and Achilles have? Well, let's start with the obvious one. Achilles is known for having been dipped in divine waters by the gods and having invulnerable armor. His greatest marital or warlike strength is that he cannot be harmed by other weapons due to the armor that he dons, which if memory serves correct, it was Athena. If I got that detail wrong, correct me, Twitter. Who dipped him in there? Yeah. I heard versions where it was his mother, but there could be alternate versions of this. His mother is a minor water deity or a water nymph and not a major one of the Greek pantheon that she might have dipped him. And... Achilles has invincible armor. What does Iron Man have? What makes Iron Man a superhero? His armor. Check. That's a really easy parallel. In the Iliad, Homer plays with a tragic flaw that Achilles has, and that is his pride. That is his thought that because he has this magic armor, And because he's invincible, that he's above the rules, that he's above the traditions. And back in the the word that they use in the Iliad is the Vesalius, which roughly translates to chief. Um, Some people say it translates to king. But all of the different city-states had their chief or their king or their Vesalius, and which Achilles is one. But he isn't represented as the major one. Uh, The major one is Agamemnon, who is from Mycenae. And then second, there's Menelaus, who is the Vesalius of Sparta. These are the two that are in command of the Greek forces at the sack of Rome. And Achilles doesn't want to bow to their their superior command. This is manifested in that uh, Agamemnon takes his slave um, Perseus from Achilles. And Achilles says, You're going to take my slave, my slave woman, F you, I'm out. I'm not even going to fight, and hence the Greeks start doing poorly. The pride and arrogance of Achilles, well, what do we think of when we think of Tony Stark's temperament, in particular in the first Iron Man movie? He can't even bother to be given a speech when he is given an award because he's too, too busy out there gambling and hitting on girls. This is a man full of himself who thinks the normal rules do not apply to him and that no matter what he does, he is awesome and great because he is the great Tony Stark. Yeah, he's a genius billionaire playboy philanthropist. Check mark, same fatal tragic flaw. Great, great. And it goes even further. So let's talk about Perseus. Perseus is a slave girl in the ancient world. And that sucks and that's terrible. In Iron Man... What does Tony have for his love interest? It's Pepper Potts, not a slave and not saying she's a slave, but she is in his employ. Yeah, she is an assistant. She does work for him. He does use his, in many ways, his status and the fact that he's the employer over her at several points in time so that there is a, a loose connection and loose between Perseus and Pepper Potts. In fact, their names both start with P as a matter of fact. So we have another female character. Iron Man won another parallel. What is the central conflict between the hero and the villain? The villain being Obadiah. Obadiah is the Agamemnon. And what does he do? He tries to kill Pepper Potts. He tries to kill Tony Stark. He wants Tony Stark to submit to his will. And Tony ultimately has to overcome it. There's another amazing character in the Iliad named Hector, Hector of Troy. He is the hero of the Trojans. He is their great warrior. He is the Achilles equivalent. And we even see these other warriors in the Afghanistani terrorists that they want to have the power of Achilles. They want to have the power of Tony Stark. And if they could have that power, they could finally win the war and the entire world can be remade in their image, much as the Trojans want to have the power of Achilles, and ultimately Hector falls to Achilles. Now, the the end of the Iliad has Achilles killing Hector and desecrating his body. In the ancient world, this is a big motherfucking deal. It's a big deal in our world, but in particular... Yeah, it, it was like the greatest taboo. 
in the ancient world, if well, here's what happens. If you desecrate a body in the ancient world and it doesn't get a proper burial, the soul will never make its way to the afterlife right, right. to be judged. It will just be a fragmented body and soul that hangs out on earth in perpetual, never-ending torment. There is no greater dishonor to a warrior who has fought bravely for their society to not get their proper burial so that they could get their just rewards in the afterlife. Priam, the father of Hector, visits Achilles, sneaks into the Greek camp and says, please just let me bury my my son with dignity, to which Achilles says, you, you know what? I agree, you can do that, and I'll give you two weeks of peace in exchange for how noble you have been uh, Priam in coming to me and what a great warrior Hector was. At the end of the day, push comes to shove. Even when Achilles is hot-headed and desecrating bodies, he will respect true, genuine displays of honor and humility, and he will respect the form. At the end of the day, he'll honor Hector. Do we see something similar like this in Tony Stark? All over the place. Tony Stark eventually comes to respect uh, Captain America and Thor as his allies. He eventually comes to respect the Sokovia Accords, to which he realizes we must check our power. He eventually comes aligned to the idea that he has to work within a moral framework and can't just do whatever he wants because yeah. he has the armor. Yeah, his arc is definitely uh, of of one from uh, egoism and self-preservation and uh, self-aggrandizement into working in a collective, into giving up his pride while he still maintains, you know, a healthy amount of, you know, staunch arrogance. He still has that part of his personality. He has become a more or less selfless moral person by the end of this long 10, 11 year arc. Absolutely. He becomes the person who would take a nuclear bomb into space. Right, yeah. He becomes the person who will fight Thanos head-on with just a ragtag group of other heroes rather than bring Thanos potentially back to Earth to harm more people. He becomes that. He becomes Achilles, allowing the proper burial for Hector, allow the proper funeral rites to happen. I will be a good and moral person. In particular... Heroes in a culture, they end up, and I've said this before, acting as both a aspiration for which people want to go to. The hero is the person you want to be the most like. Right, a fantasy. Well as they end up creating and reflecting the morals of the time. There is no better hero for understanding ancient Greece than Achilles because he was the most important hero to the ancient Greeks. When Alexander the Great went to conquer Persia, and he stopped by what was believed to be the gravesite of Achilles. He stopped and paid homage and did sacrifices to Achilles as if he were a god. Achilles and the Iliad were recited time and time again. You knew the Iliad. It was so influential that it became the defining characteristic of Greek manliness was to be Achilles-like, fearless in battle, headstrong, a champion of combat and willing to observe the good forms and functions of great Greek religion. These became the staples by which one could say they were Greek. Tony Stark has a similar Americanness to him. He is a billionaire. Yeah. He's the, he's the consummate capitalist who is so successful because of his hard work and ingenious he stands out from all of the other regulatory and normative bodies that want to contain him, whether that's a corporation, whether that's a government, such as uh, the corporation as the Stark Industries in Iron Man 1, governments and competitive industries in Iron Man 2. But at the end of the day, when he has really realized that he has too much unchecked power, he will succumb to the UN in the Sokovia Accords. Yeah. He will be the great leader. He represents all of these virtues that are 100% purely American capitalist successfulness. He is the vision that we all want to be while also reflecting the values we find most important back to us. Yeah, so just like there was a timeliness to Achilles, I'm sure, for the ancient Greeks, but we now view him as timeless, Tony Stark 
uh, feels the most timely of all of the Avengers to us because he is uh, personally confronting the war on terror. He's personally confronting some of the vague and ambiguous but somehow ubiquitous threats that uh, modern Americans and modern people worldwide deal with, these sort of fears that we have come to uh, associate with modern life. Um, he he is he's the embodiment of what it means to be now, uh, and yet I have to wonder if he will uh, hold the same timelessness given you know the opportunity to look back like we do at Achilles. I think that's an interesting comparison there. Well, you know what? We'll have to go in our time machine a thousand years in the future and see if they're still talking about Tony Stark's Iron Man. There's still an Earth. But um, I'll say this: when we talk about how it reverberates. There is an interesting example in the ancient world, if I may bring that up. Is that okay? Yeah, please. The Trojan War and the heroes that fought into it were so central to the Greek identity that when the Roman society started becoming the main power in the ancient world, they wanted to adopt the Greek culture because they thought it was so advanced and they were enamored with it. So much so that they adopted parts of, of the Iliad as their own parts of the story of the Trojan war as their own. So the Romans wanted to be both Greek like, but also separate. Right. They claimed that Aeneas who was a Trojan who fled from the burning of Troy with the sword of Troy. If you've seen the movie, Troy went and founded Rome. They claim that Hector is their hero. So Hector was the one that they totally 100% were into in the Roman world so that they could a connect themselves to the Greeks and b differentiate themselves from the Greeks. So they have a lineage to the Trojan war that allows them to what we call a classicist would call Hellenize be like the Greeks and the ancient Greeks. And then they also adapted it to differentiate themselves from it going forward. Who knows if the societies that come will be emulating Tony Stark, or maybe there'll be another piece of this narrative that people will cling to and reflect. But I think these narratives will probably endure. Yeah. I think a thousand years from now, if you want to understand modern uh, America at this time, one of the artifacts that you're going to have to go to is Marvel. Yeah. I, I love that you brought that up though. The, um, relationship of the Romans to differentiating themselves while connecting themselves to the Greeks because you think about so many medieval and uh, early modern states and uh, you know cities and countries trying to relate themselves back to the Roman Empire, and to just think about the continuum of that and how we're constantly trying to find ourselves in the past is really fascinating. I mean, um, I could go on and on. Yeah. <laughs> Friends out there in the Midnight Myth, if you want to know why there's a city called Cincinnati, it has to do with Roman history sure and George does. Washington. And George Washington. And you can tweet at me if you want to know that. I'll tell you all about it. Oh my God. So I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up because we've been talking about Achilles with his relationship to Iron Man for the last few minutes. Uh, what people probably know Achilles best from when you say that word, we think of his heel. And you mentioned his greatest. Uh, a tragic flaw as his pride, which I think symbolically we can agree is absolutely what that is. The heel um, is the pride. But the, yeah, the heel yeah. represents the pride. Uh, Achilles is killed because uh, when he was dipped in that river that gave him this invulnerable magical armor, he was held by the back of his foot. So there was a part of him that didn't get that enchantment. And because of that... Uh, he is able to be brought down even though he thinks he's invincible. And when we relate that back to Iron Man, we have uh, Tony Stark who emerges as Iron Man because he's got a hole in his heart, because he's got shrapnel uh, you know, about to close in on him. So he has this one very physical, very clear, uh, very literal weakness that you can see, uh, a chink in his armor, if you will, uh, but that represents a deeper part of him. Later in the series, uh, you'll see the proof that Tony Stark has a heart in the original arc reactor that he uh, uses to keep himself alive. Uh, there is a, a slight reference there, I think, to the Achilles heel in that our pride and our arrogance can sometimes manifest in these literal weaknesses in our ability to fight. I agree with you. And I also think in particular with Iron Man, the fact that the shrapnel is in around his heart 
is a representation of him going from heartlessness to heartful. Just like the Tin Man. Absolutely. Tin Man is Iron Man. His That's heart, my thesis. And the Grinch. <laughs> yeah. They're all the same. But yeah, I think there is a representation. So with the flaw of, of a Greek is that you can get given magical armor that can protect you, but there's still going to be a layer of unprotection. And it manifests in pride because he has this armor. He gets so prideful, he forgets that he does have a weakness and doesn't protect it and then gets killed. And the tendon that is there that he gets killed by is still called the Achilles still tendon today. Still known as today. the Achilles tendon. With Tony Stark, it's a similar but unrelated. He's not given magical armor by a god, but he has to build it himself because he's a great American capitalist. Yeah, he's got to he, pick himself up. And the problem with him as a great American capitalist pre-armor is that he doesn't give a shit about anything or anyone but making money and having fun. And it takes him tremendous loss. It takes him literally inches away from death at any moment to come up with a... And it takes the sacrifice of Yusuf as a friend who lays down his life for Tony's to realize, hey, my gifts are actually more important and can do so much better than what I have been doing. And in that way, it grounds it in a, not an ancient Greek way, but in an American way. Yeah, yeah. And it, it paves this path toward redemption, where Achilles has the opportunity to redeem himself by delivering the body of Hector and providing for his uh, proper burial. We have a continued narrative for Tony Stark that is going to go on forward from here. He's not just going to have to die at the end of all of this. We have the opportunity for him to continue making a better life and because he has as much influence as he does, he will continue to try to make the world a better place, even though he will stumble along the way. I would say if my Achilles metaphor is correct, I would, I'm throwing this out here as a potential prediction, I don't know anything, that Iron Man will die in the next Avengers movie. He has to, yeah. if, he, if I'm right and he is really Achilles, Achilles does not get to come home from the war. And Iron Man will likely not get to come home from this war either. I think it's he's oh he's been on so many one-way trips, eventually he can't find his way home. And I think there is a way to say that glory in combat and being the greatest warrior usually ends bloody and not ends with peace and prosperity. Yeah, I think comparing that to the Achilles arc is absolutely uh appropriate to make that prediction. Uh, but I also think we've gotten so many biblical references, especially in the first Iron Man and the first Avengers movie, that we're also working with a sort of Jesus Christ narrative in terms of his, how many resurrections does he get before it's time to uh, sacrifice himself for the good of the rest of us and finally bow out and say goodbye. So I think both of those working in concert makes that prediction kind of inevitable, but I hope I'm wrong because I want to see more Robert Downey Jr. And there's a big economic influence to yes. keep him alive. He is still the most popular of the MCU characters. Uh, maybe Spider-Man and Black Panther are rivaling in popularity at this point, but yeah. it's either, you know, if you put Tony Stark in the movie, if you put Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark in the movie, I should say, it's going to perform better than if it doesn't have him in there. Yeah, we're going to show up. Um, I would love to talk about the sort of evolution of Tony's relationship to his armor in the, um, in the shadow of that Achilles question because we're talking about a character whose, um, whose armor is part of him. We're talking about a character who is clothed in his suit like it is a second skin, uh, literally. And I think that the, um, the Tony Stark narrative parallels it so beautifully but when we start to see um tony's relationship to his suit evolve i think we have some other mythological and literary references that we're playing with here let's do and i'd it. love to give those a little bit of appreciation as i was preparing for this podcast and to talk about iron man i was thinking a lot about how uh between the standalone films up through uh especially Avengers Age of Ultron and beyond, I think even into Homecoming, we see Tony uh, start to divorce himself and his body and his consciousness and his awareness from the suits. And he'll start making more and more and he'll make modifications and he'll make different versions, the Mark III, four, five, six, seven, eight, 42, a thousand. 
uh, so many different versions of the suit, many of which can actually um, pilot themselves or that he can pilot remotely. Uh, he makes suits for other people. He makes the Hulkbuster suit for Bruce Banner. He makes the Iron Patriot suit for uh, Rhodey. And we have a uh, a changing relationship to the armor where Tony and Iron Man himself is no longer just Tony in a suit. There is uh, something special about the man himself uh, that we we don't necessarily have in all of the other uh, superheroes. Usually your sup- your superpowers are part of your body, right? And right. not the same with Tony Stark. The Hulk is the one with Bruce Banner. Captain America has super strength. Thor is a literal god. Yeah. Hawkeye is the greatest, you know, bone or marksman in history. Got it. Yeah. So I was looking into the mythology of automata, uh, which... Uh, that word, you probably know the word automaton or automatic, I'm sure. But uh, when you hear that, you probably think of robots or you think of any inanimate, uh, somehow animate object. The essential definition is a mechanical object that can uh, operate itself. Um, and as I was researching this, the first place that my mind went was to the legend of the golem especially the Golem of Prague, which I'll talk a little bit about. But as I'm going down this rabbit hole, I found out that the word automaton uh, originates in epic poetry and originates in Homer's The Iliad, Boom. which was the first like major insane uh, coincidence as I was going down this research rabbit hole. Um, it presents itself in the Iliad as a set of automatic doors and tripods and a few things that Hephaestus is uh, creating in his forge that operate themselves. Now, in Greek mythology, there were a few automatons or automata, the most notable of which is going to be a figure named Talos. Uh, And this is a bronze, a giant bronze man uh, who in some versions was created by Hephaestus in some versions wasn't but was usually created to guard Europa, who was one of the women that uh, Zeus raped, of course, and she lived on Crete. And and real quick, for those who don't know, who is Hephaestus? Hephaestus was, uh, he's also known as Vulcan in the Roman tradition. He was the sort of smith for the gods uh, and the husband of Aphrodite. Talos appears in a few versions of the uh, Greek myth of Jason and the Golden Fleece, Jason and the Argonauts. And he's usually pictured protecting the island of Crete by hurling rocks at any pirates who come close to it, including the Argo. Uh, Now, there's one version of this tale known as the Argonautica, in which the sorceress Medea is tasked with uh, deactivating or neutralizing Talos, this figure, so that Jason can get onto the island and get the Golden Fleece and fulfill his quest. Now, to do this, she learns that Talos has only one vein, He's just this big bronze figure, and he has one vein through which runs the fluid that sustains his life force. And it runs from his neck to his ankle. And at the base of his body, there at his ankle, is the one nail that holds that vein in place, this one bronze nail. So in this version of the myth known as the Argonautica, Medea tricks him into letting her remove the nail or removing it himself and thus draining this life force or this blood substitute so that he dies. And even the translator, Peter Green, who translated the Argonautica, was like, this is Achilles. This is another version of Achilles. So we already see in mythology this correspondence between that uh, that great Greek hero who uh, epitomizes Greekness and his armor that's so a part of him, so much of a second skin, and this figure, Talos, who is just a pile of metal. He's just a pile of bronze, but he dies in a similar way. He has a similar weakness. And we have these two figures who are completely separated by bodily uh, appearance, but follow the same sort of uh, plot beats. And so I used that to kind of track the difference between uh, Tony as Achilles and Tony as Talos, we have uh, the separation of those bodies. Does that make sense? Uh, 
Kind of. I So I want to ask, Talos, his connection to Achilles, it's pretty clear that because they both have the thing of the ankle, but I'm not sure I get, if you don't mind fleshing out maybe a little better, the connection between Talos to Iron Man. Are you saying that that flows through the Achilles, that there's like a circle here? So what I think I'm getting at here is that... Uh, Iron Man and Tony are not the same, even though he asserts that he is Iron Man. Uh, as the uh, journey of this character uh, nears its completion, as he travels along this arc, Tony becomes more in touch with who he is as a person, and his relationship to the suit becomes more and more tenuous. Uh, so we start to see him... Uh, exercising his power without the suit sometimes. And we start to see the suits pilot themselves. And we start to see the suits follow his orders. And we start to see an army of suits rather than just one suit that is a second skin to Tony. Uh, so because of that, I was interested in the relationship between like the Achilles narrative and the Talos narrative because one is a man who can reason and a man who can learn. And the other is just an automaton. It's interesting if we connect those thread points from Tony creating just robots for him to command, plus the suits that he can jump into, into him creating Ultron, which is giving birth to a sentient automaton, which is creating the manifestation of consciousness into the inanimate thing that he controlled and, you know, he couldn't control it. Yeah, absolutely. It's the classic uh, sort of Frankenstein narrative. And we watch him uh, yeah, go from creating something as, as an exoskeleton, as something to be part of himself, to thinking that he can create life. Uh, and this tracks us through to another, uh, I think, really powerful automaton narrative, automaton legend, and that's the, the golem legend. And I think that is, uh, I think that plays a huge role in the Avengers and a huge role in Tony's development and the recognition of that uh, hubris that will be realized. So the, uh, the Golem legend, uh, especially the classic narrative of the Golem of Prague, is a legend that says that in the 16th century, uh, Rabbi Loa of Prague, known as the Maharal or the teacher of Prague, created a golem out of clay from the banks of the Voltava River to defend Prague's Jewish ghetto. Uh, the golem is an anthropomorphic figure. He's usually a very large figure, as you'll see him, but looks like a man. Uh, and he's created and brought to life through religious rituals. He's usually depicted with some Hebrew lettering on his forehead. Uh, now, using a piece of paper or a scroll with a series of letters known as a shem, Placed in its mouth, the golem can be activated to carry out orders for you. Uh, so he would be deactivated on a Friday to observe the Sabbath, because, of course, he is a protector of the Jewish people. But in one version of the tales, the rabbi forgot to deactivate him on a Friday, and he ended up wreaking havoc and going on a murderous rampage as this perfect you know, parallel to the Frankenstein narrative. Anytime you try to create life out of nothing it's going to go wrong. It never really works out. And I think its relationship to Iron Man is, is manifold. Uh, this sort of evolving relationship to the suits as we move through the standalone movies, uh, they become less and less a part of him and more and more uh, automatic and independent servants of his will. Uh, but just as we see in, uh, especially in Iron Man 3, they'll often carry out their, uh, their instructions literally, just like the golem would. And that'll usually end up, uh, you know, backfiring and they need to be tricked into deactivation, just like Talos. Um, and the Iron Man and Avengers comics are aware of this. There's been golem figures, characters who are called golem or techno golem throughout the stories. Uh, so I think it's definitely present within the narrative, this relationship to the sort of Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, you know, when you say that, it makes me think and permit me a pivot yeah. The idea of creating the automaton, the idea of creating life in the inanimate is very much to me also like creating a machine. Yeah. And very much like Hephaestus, who is crafting machines. 
And I think I'd like to transition a little bit out of the mythological and go more into the philosophical implications of the character Iron Man. Yeah, let's do it. Who uses machines to wage war. And I think there's a central ethical question that threads through all of the main Iron Man storylines, in particular in the solo movies, and then it bleeds into the other more like interconnected narratives. And that question is, what is the role of mechanized warfare? Yeah. And how do you wage warfare justly? And these are big ethical considerations and topics. People that are out there that have studied warfare and public policy don't have the answers to these. So I don't think we're going to be creating the answers. But there is a a validity in looking in Iron Man as a way to, in particular for Americans, to work out what it means to use force. Who has the ability to decide to use force? When those decisions are made, who made them? Are those decisions correct? And who supports those that make the decisions to use force? Pragmatically, in Iron Man 1, Iron Man is, or Tony Stark, rather, is making weapons. Those weapons are being sold indiscriminately to the highest bidder for whoever wants, no matter what, whether it's ethical or right. And Iron Man develops a way to combat that because he sees that as inherently wrong. He wanted to defend Americans and his weapons are being used to kill Americans. And going forward, he reconciles with using force as an Avenger. What does it mean for us to go into these scenarios and situations and wage combat in different parts of the globe against different threats without oversight, without consideration, without a system to decide whether we should or shouldn't. And he ultimately decides that he needs some form of accountability and oversight, even if it's imperfect because the Avengers are literally killing people. Civilians are dying as a result of their combat. There needs to be some sort of check to their power. And as we are wrestling with these questions right now, I'd be remiss to, to admit that after 2001, in September 11th, pardon me, 2001, we have had unchecked warfare where people who now have the ability to vote were not alive when this the, the terrorist attacks happened. Yeah. How much warfare do we need as a result of that incident? At what point have we crossed the threshold into we're not waging a just war. We're just waging war. Oh, yeah. And these are considerations that I think the Iron Man character can be instructive because you might have the biggest, baddest weapons and you might have the ability to unleash them, but should you? And should you trust the institution that says that you can and cannot use them when that institution might in fact secretly be Hydra? When that institution (laughs) might be Tony Stark as an Avenger creating Ultron, that there are so many ways that using force has gone awry and backfired against Iron Man that his central conflict is how do one of his central conflicts is how do I decide to use force? When can I use it? What I want to be ethical in how I use the power that I have. My power is inherently military power. How do I use this power ethically? I think that debate rages on, but Iron Man definitely puts a pin on like unregulated, unchecked warfare is fundamentally bad and it results to unnecessary casualties. Yeah, and I think there's a an excellent case to be made that every installment of the Iron Man franchise and every movie that he is involved in uh, tests or uh, examines another facet of modern warfare uh, and does so, you know, I, I know there's a lot of art and literature and science and all kinds of explorations and studies out there that are looking into uh, the consequences of modern warfare, but on a mainstream scale, this is the most accessible. And so to watch, you know, the first Iron Man movie where we have a character who is complacent in capitalism and completely unaware that his, uh, his prospering is at the hands of the deaths of innocents, uh, you know, coming to terms with those consequences. In Iron Man 2, we'll see the consequences of, you know, wielding your hand of you know, taking matters into your own hands is going to be a theme that uh, perpetuates throughout uh, his arc. Uh, How can I justly wield the force that I have, just like you were saying? 
Uh, in Iron Man 3, we see the human cost. We see PTSD. We see what happens when people come back unsure of who they are uh, after you know losing a part of themselves at war. And in the Civil War and Avengers movies, we're going to see, uh, again, that theme of having near absolute power in a capitalist system, in a system that supports superheroes without regulations, what the cost of that is both for, you know, external people, for loss of life, for, you know, loss of prosperity, and for uh, Iron Man himself, and for the person who is in the most power. So I think those are excellent questions that are being brought to the mainstream and are being worked through sometimes with great eloquence and sometimes with great vagueness, but I'm happy that they're being asked in the mainstream at all. Yeah, I what's one of the, the best parts of the... Um, sort of societal philosophical aspects to Iron Man is that he represents a part of the military industrial complex that decided to have a conscience and decided to be moral yeah. over being profitable. And I think that is really amazing and great. And the beauty of Iron Man as a character is it doesn't tear down capitalism. Stark Industries continues to be profitable even when they stop selling weapons you know, so I think that is something that they say that it's not inherently anti-capitalist. Sure. But at the same time, what it is, it, it is very much anti-war profiteering. Yes, it absolutely. Is very much anti-giving people power and letting them use that unregulated and unchecked to wage war whenever they want and how they want. In pragmatic terms, after September 11th, 2001, Congress gave the president the right to wage war in the war on terror unconditionally. Uh, the te then they also gave the president the power to define what a terrorist was. So we live in a system now where a one person can decide who the terrorists are, and then they can decide how to kill the terrorists. And in Iron Man, there is a working out like, is that all right? Should right. there be some checks? Who really, like, one of the reasons Iron Man and Iron Man 2 can't hand the suit over is because he's just like, I can't trust the American government to do this. I have to hold this and keep this secret because they're part of a, a corrupt system that would use it uh, against freedom and against peace. At least I know that I can use it for peace. And then that evolves to yeah. the point where we get to civil war where he's like, there has to, I, I can't just decide this for myself. I can't unilaterally decide. There has to be a body above us that decides whether we are or are not using this power justly. Now, I would argue that they undercut the Sokovia Accords instantly. Yeah. And the Sokovia Accords post-Civil War have meant nothing to the narratives. At no point do we see a hero post-Civil War going like... Do paperwork. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Can we go in there and fight this? Let's ask the UN first. I mean... Which is a little undercuttery, but anyway, yeah. I digress. I'm being nitpicky here about, I said I wouldn't do it, and I did it. Long story short, I love that Iron Man wrestles with the questions of what it means to be a warrior. And I would hearken this back to Achilles, because Achilles establishes what it meant to be a warrior in ancient Greece, and Iron Man is attempting to answer that question for us now. And I think that is its greatest um, attribute. It's its greatest strength. And it's one of the most fun parts about it because it's very rare that you can get to a family-friendly popcorn <laughs> summer blockbuster that is also questioning the veracity and moral goodness of the military-industrial complex. It's pretty amazing. That's fucking fantastic. Um, I think that the next step of that, of what does it mean to be a modern warrior with relationship to Iron Man and Achilles is what does modern hubris look like? What is institutional hubris when it comes to the connection of Iron Man and the ancient Greeks and Greek tragedy? I love it because hubris is an ancient Greek world word that means someone thinks they're a living God. Yeah. And how does that relate to, uh, Unilateral, unilateral ability to declare war. How does that, uh, you know, track next to unchecked power? How does that track next to deregulation of institutions? Uh, how do we apply these sort of mythic examples and these ancient cautionary tales to our own existence and say, hey, 
are we stepping above our station? Are we still asking the questions that need to be asked about consequence? Are we still looking inward instead of simply trying to destroy and conquer? And Marvel is smart enough to let its main, most popular hero, uh, potentially most popular, let's not forget Spider-Man and Black Panther. Correct, yeah. But probably the like central hero, if not the most popular, one of the most popular, they give Iron Man space to figure this out, to yeah. work it out. And fuck up. And make mistakes and then try to backtrack and try to correct. And I think that's part of the magic sauce of Tony Stark, of the character Tony Stark in the MCU, is that we get to see him trying to figure out what it means to wage just war, what it means to use force ethically, what it means to run a business that is adjacent to the military ethically, what it means ultimately to have power at the end of the day, the ethical questions around a superhero are, what does it mean to have power? If you have power, how do you use it? How do you exercise it? And the superhero, the Tony Stark, the Iron Man, they have tremendous power. And it's amazing that Tony Stark will buff the institutions, will submit to the institutions, all in the effort of just trying to figure this shit out. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's wonderful that he gets the opportunity on a long road to redemption to backslide and to make mistakes and to screw it all up, but to never stop trying. And it's important to note pragmatically in our current political discourse, there's not a single person asking for power that has the answer of how to deal with America's military ethically. Nobody has that answer. We have not figured it out and nor has Tony Stark. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. Let's jump right in. Let's roll up our sleeves and get to work. So. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that wasn't meant to uh, get you out of it. I'm just really into this podcast, man. This is so much fun. Oh, my God. Talking about the Iron Mans. Let's roll up our (laughs) sleeves, get some elbow grease ready, and let's do it. Oh, all right. I'll just stop.